And the title of my message this morning is Fundamentals. Fundamentals. I'll give you a moment to get there. Uh, but we as a, a church family have a wonderful opportunity this morning to celebrate uh, with several families that are being dedicated, not just the babies, but the families and their children being dedicated to the Lord. And uh, at the end of the message, we're going to do the actual charge to the families, charge to the church, the dedication portion uh, of the service, because I believe it's an outflow of what we're going to talk about this morning in Psalm 127. But uh, we are very blessed. What a wonderful occasion to celebrate together. Psalm 127 for me is one of my favorite psalms uh, in uh, in what's called the Psalter, the name for the book of Psalms. And the reason I love it is because uh, King Solomon uses some very vivid images to talk about children. And some of those are funny and some of those are serious and more weighty. But uh, I think as we walk through this, you'll just be reminded of how uh, important children are to families and to the church. Another reason that I love Psalm 127 is the simplicity uh, of, the, of the five verses that we're going to study this morning. It's pretty straightforward, and, and Solomon is directing our attention not just to children, but to the fundamental kind of basic building blocks of life. Because you will notice, before we get into verse 3, uh, the first couple of verses have nothing to do with children. They uh, involve home and involve uh, family and involve security and involve community, things like that. And so uh, I, I think we need to say up front that Psalm 127 contains a lot about children, but it's not exclusively about children only. Um, it's uh, actually re a reminder to us of how desperately we need the Lord in these fundamental areas of our lives. And so that's what we want to talk about this morning. Several years ago, one of my favorite players growing up uh, took over the managing responsibilities for the Philadelphia Phillies. His name is Ryan Sandberg, R-Y-N-E. Does anybody remember Sandberg playing for the Cubs, second baseman? All right, all right, we got some baseball fans, that's good. If you're not a baseball fan, here's the good news. It's October, so baseball becomes interesting again because it's the playoffs, so everybody starts to tune in in October. That's me anyway. Uh, but Sandberg, at the time he was managing the Phillies, was the only manager in the league who was actually a Hall of Fame player himself. Nobody else had the level of experience that Sandberg had. And so when he took over the management of the team, you would have expected Sandberg to take this professional lineup of baseball players and work on all these complex drills and skills and schemes and different things to throw people out at different places. But that's not what Sandberg did. He actually took this lineup of professional baseball players, guys who have been playing the game for 20 and 30 years, and he took them all the way back to the fundamentals, the basic building blocks of playing the game of baseball, things they learned when they were six and seven years old or maybe even younger out on the diamond. And he had his staff spray paint blue spots on the inside corner of the base. You say, well, why does that matter? Because when you're rounding the base, you don't want to step on the middle of the base. That's a slower route to the next place that you're going. You want to step on that inside corner. And so at practice, these blue spots were painted. And the, the players, these professional players, had to step on this certain spot every time. And Sandberg made them work on this. He also made his team work on daily defensive drills. Just basic things that you, you work on as a, a child in the rec leagues. He had his outfielders practice hitting the right cutoff man. Now, if you know anything about baseball or softball, after you know, a year or two of learning to throw the ball from the outfield to the infield, uh, your quickest line there is right to your cutoff man, uh, who's right there at the edge of the infield, and they relay the ball to another location on the field somewhere. 
He has his team going over these things daily in practice. And you're thinking, man, this is the stuff that we teach children. Why is he doing this with uh, players, professional baseball players? Well, the reason is, is because it was mastering the little things. It was getting the fundamentals and the basics down pat. So it was just muscle memory. You just do those basic things when it comes time to perform. That took Sandberg to the Hall of Fame as a second baseman for the Cubs and for the Phillies. And when we come to Psalm 127 this morning, it's going to have a large focus on children. But we need to say up front that it's exclusively not just about children. It includes home and work and security and family and things of this nature. And to me, what makes Psalm 127 so powerful is that King Solomon touches on these fundamental parts of life. And he teaches us this one lesson that I don't want you to forget. Only what comes from God is truly strong. Only what comes from the Lord, only what is anchored in His Word and the Gospel is truly strong. So you can have a church of 2,000 people filled, just packed to the gills. And not be anchored in the Word and not be talking about the Gospel and not be sending people out into the community and lifting up Jesus' name and be as weak as water. And so this psalm reminds us if we want to have strong homes... If we want our community to be built up and and strong, if we want our children to grow in the wisdom and sound judgment, if you want to have meaningful labor in your jobs, whatever it is you do, then all of these fundamental areas of life have to be anchored in the Lord. And so we're going to walk through this psalm together just verse by verse, and then we will make application together as a church family as we dedicate these children to the Lord together. So verse 1 says this, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. The first thing that jumped out at me is the difficulty of this labor. Building a house is strenuous, difficult work. Staying up all night, keeping watch over a city, the responsibility that went along with being a night watchman was difficult and strenuous labor. Imagine doing all of those things and then finding out all of it was wasted. All of it was empty. That's what Solomon says happens here if you don't anchor these things in God. Verse 1 is an if-then statement. If the Lord doesn't build the house, then the workers waste their time. If the Lord doesn't guard the city, the night watchman misses a good night's sleep for Nothing. And what Solomon is reminding us is this truth. We are hardwired as human beings, created in the image of God to do life God's way. Have you ever talked to someone at the end of their life? And they recently gave their life to Jesus Christ and began to do life His way. Have you ever listened to the things that they say? I wish I'd have done this so much sooner. Why didn't somebody tell me about this before? Why didn't I follow God? Why didn't I do life His way? I wasted so many years. And that's what Solomon is warning us against right here. The word in vain means empty, worthless, and wasted. Empty, worthless, and wasted. Imagine pouring all of the best of your life, your energy, your resources, your strength, your family, everything God has given to you into a big cup. And at the end of your life, you look to see what you have accumulated and you discover in the bottom is a gaping hole. And everything you were investing in just poured out and was wasted. We had an accident at the house yesterday 
And somebody was trying to get the Oreo bin. All of our troubles start with the Oreo bin. Somebody was trying to get the Oreo canister out. Knocks over the syrup. I just bought the syrup. I mean, I went and did the grocery run myself this week. And this pained me. This syrup falls and hits the floor and the top cracks open and syrup goes all over the floor. And I just stand there looking at what I had worked so hard to secure. And it was wasted. And we weren't going to scoop it up and put it back in the container. Might have thought about it, but we're not going to do that. It was worthless. It was in vain. I think verse 1 is reminding us that God has to be the general contractor of our lives, doesn't he? Are are we the general contractor or are we the manual laborers? In other words, let me ask you this question. Whose sign is in the front yard of your life? Every time you ride past any kind of construction site, one of the first things they do is get this sign out and stick it in the ground. They want everyone to know who's doing the work. But see, here's the problem. We put our name on the sign and stick it in the front yard. And we want everybody to look at us. That's vain. That's empty. It's worthless. It's wasted. And Solomon is reminding us here, it is all for nothing if we put our own sign in the front yard. You know who said the same thing in the New Testament? The Apostle Paul. Listen to Philippians 3, 7 and 8. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And you'll see I put the ellipsis there. He talks about being a Hebrew of Hebrews uh, in regard to the law of Pharisee. He lists his credentials. But here's what he said. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss compared to, listen, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord and Savior. Did Paul have an intimate personal knowledge of Jesus? Yes. Was it just about passing a test about Jesus and knowing certain facts for Paul? Not at all. I mean, when he was in the prison in Acts chapter 16, he's singing praises to someone he knows and he loves. He's not just passing the test of, I remember this Bible verse and I learned that one and I went to Sunday school and I did this and that. He says it all is loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing him. Christ Jesus, my Lord. In the original language, Paul uses a word that was a little bit kind of rough. It's the word scubalon. Now, when I say scubalon, you don't think, you know, what does that mean? The word scubalon, you know what it means? Dung. And I'm saying that in a nice way. Dung. He says, everything I accomplished before I met Jesus Christ and began to live my life for Him, it all goes on the dung pile Every bit of it, all the trophies of my former life, I have trashed for the treasure of heaven. Paul gladly traded everything for Jesus. Let me ask you a a question that may haunt some of you in this room. We need to ask this question of, of ourselves, all of us. Am I spending the best of my time and talents and gifts and resources on things that God calls empty? God has a standard of how he measures things and their value. And sometimes our standard doesn't look anything like what God's standard is. And so we need to ask ourselves, what am I doing with my life? Am I doing things God's way or am I doing it my way? Verse 2. Let's read that together. It says, it is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest. 
eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. And this is a fascinating phrase. When I got to digging beneath the surface just a little bit, what does it mean when you say the eating the bread of anxious toil? Well, it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, all the way to the start of the Bible, where God curses the ground because of Adam's sin. Adam disobeyed, and he brought curses on himself instead of blessings. And here's what happened to Adam. Instead of receiving the bread of blessing from God, instead of receiving that bread of blessing, he made for himself a painful panini sandwich. We had panini sandwiches last night. If you're not familiar with those, they are amazing. All right, but what Paul or, or but what Solomon says here is instead of receiving the blessing that, that God wants to give us, we receive curses that come from doing life our own way. We experience anxiety and frustration in our efforts. Listen to Genesis three and seventeen. And God said to Adam, "Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it." Listen, cursed is the ground. Because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Do you know what that means? By implication. Before this happened, work did not have the laborious, anxious feeling. There was no stress in it. Adam just did what God called him to do. He cared for creation. He took care of things. He enjoyed God's blessing in his work. Do you think God's original design for the world that you live in was all the brokenness and the pain and the suffering and the death and the hunger and the sickness? Genesis 1 and 2 would say no. God created this place to display His glory to the nations. And He created man so that we would know Him intimately and we would reflect that relationship that we have with Christ to people around us. But what happened? Adam and Eve began to listen to the wrong voice. And the serpent comes along at just the right moment and says, are you sure this is what God said? What's he saying? Are you sure he wants you to do it this way? Maybe you could do it that way. And what did Adam and Eve do? They entertained the wrong voice. And they failed to listen to who they should have listened to in the beginning. And because of that, our world became broken. And you know what we're living under today? All of us are born with original sin. All of us are born as sinners. And we're living under the curse and the weight and the oppression that comes with disobeying God and doing life our way. That's what happened. God said, if you'll do it my way, here's what it's going to be like. And Genesis 1 and 2 paint a beautiful picture of what it is like to do life God's way. And then Genesis 3 comes along, and man says to God, I'm going to do it my way. And we see how things have been working out ever since Genesis chapter 3. But verse 2 is clear. God knows how to give good gifts to his children. And one of those is sleep. So let me ask you a question. Does anyone else in here besides me love sleep? I love sleep. Like, I love waking up in the morning and that feeling of like, man, that was a good night's rest. Now, in the last few years, I've forgotten what that feels like uh, quite as much. I don't get a lot of that anymore, but I love sleep. And can you think of any greater contrast than anxious toil and a peaceful night's sleep? 
I mean, they're at complete ends of the spectrum. And look at the way Solomon lays it out here. You're going to eat the bread of anxious toil, but God wants to give you what? Sleep. He gives to his beloved, the New American Standard says, even in his sleep. So while we're talking about sleep and we're talking about children, I found an interesting fact on kids and sleep. And you parents may testify to this in a moment. But a new baby typically causes 400 to 750 hours of lost sleep for parents in the first year. And all the parents in here nodding. Especially the ones who are having to hold their eyelids open this morning. This one's random, but I thought it was really cool. Ducks at risk of an attack by predators, can balance their need for sleep and survival. They can keep half their brain in survival mode awake and half their brain into sleep mode. And they can flip-flop. They can switch those around. Can any of you do that in here? No. I don't see any feathers. I don't hear any quacking. As humans, we're not designed to do that. We are designed to lay down, to go to sleep, and this recharging, this renewal happens, and we wake up ready for the next day. And you know what happens when you sleep? You are completely dependent on someone else. A couple of weeks ago, had my house locked up and everything was good, laid down, went to sleep, woke up the next morning, and found my car had been gone through. And someone had broken into my car and they had stole some stuff out of my car. I had no idea. Why? I was knocked out. I was asleep. I wasn't conscious of what was going on. I was depending on someone else to even give me breath while I sleep. Think about it. You do not wake up. You do not wake up in the middle of the night and go, did I, did I remember to breathe for the last two hours? No, you just, you just do it. God takes care of you in your sleep. And Solomon's point here, I think, is this. Unless we learn to depend on God in our waking moments, like we do when we are sleeping, then we're not living life the way that God intended it. The dependency you have on God when you're asleep is the same dependency that ought to be a part of every single moment. What does Proverbs chapter 3 say? Acknowledge Him in all your ways, and He will direct your path. Is the Bible not complete with just an unbelievable amount of references to doing life God's way? I'll give you this quote. It'll be behind me on the screen this morning. I heard a pastor say this. If dependence is our objective, then weakness is our advantage. Think about that. If your goal is to become as dependent on God in this life as you can, then what's going to drive you towards that kind of dependence? It's not physical strength and emotional strength and mental strength and social relational strength and spiritual strength. Think about the times that you have fallen at the feet of the Lord in worship and said, I need you right now, Lord, more than I ever have. It's when you're weak. And so if dependence is our goal, then weakness serves as an advantage to drive us toward Christ. Verse number 3, the song shifts gears a little bit, but we're still under the same umbrella of depending on the Lord. Verse 3 says this, Behold, children are a heritage or a gift from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. So if we go back to when Solomon wrote this song, the concept of family was huge for Jewish families. It really saddens me to say that families are being broken down all over the place in our country. 
One of the greatest things that I see when I go into the school over here once or twice a week and work with students is students that come into these schools and, and their homes are just falling apart. And marriages are crumbling and they're witnessing things and they're bringing with them into the classroom and they need people to come around them and champion them and be in their corner. The concept of family, we're, we're losing that today, aren't we? It's crumbling. It was huge for Jewish people. One Jewish rabbi said this, Each child brings a blessing all his own. We rejoice in people because we are a people, a historical people. Well, what does that rabbi mean to say that Jews are a historical people? Here's what it means. He's going all the way back to Genesis 17 when God chose a nation of people. He began with Abram. Interesting. Abram means father. Did he have any kids? Not at that point. His name's Father. No kids. How ironic. How shameful to meet someone and say, hey, my name's Father. How many kids you got? None. And then God changes his name from Father to, or we've said Daddy, to Abraham, which means Big Daddy. And you're going to be the father of many nations. So he goes into the tent. He tells Sarah, you're not going to believe this. God just told me to look up into the sky, look at all the stars, and I'm going to have, we're going to have that many descendants. What's Sarah do? She laughs at him. Are you kidding? Do you know how old we are? We have nothing right now. How's God going to give this to us? And God says to Abraham, you're going to have many descendants. And listen to this. Kings are going to come from your line. What a precious, powerful promise. To be Abraham and God say, I'm going to take your emptiness and your weakness and I'm going to turn it into strength. And I'm going to give you the thing that you need and desire most. And it's not for you, Abraham. It's to bless the world through you. Because kings are going to come from your line. And you know who that king that's going to come through your line is? The king of kings. And the Lord of lords. That's the history of Israel. That's who Solomon's talking about. This is his people. And so if this promise for kings to come through Abraham's line rests on the value of kids and on childbearing, then here's what that means about kids. Children. And let me say this. Unborn children. All children carry an immeasurable sense of worth to God. Amen. The Son of God came in the flesh as a baby. You have to excuse the expression here, but all this about heritage and fruit is, is pregnant with meaning. <laughs> Sorry, bad pastor joke. Verse 4 and 5. Should have skipped that one. Verse 4. It says, Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. Solomon calls his kids, or calls kids arrows in the hand of a warrior. Now, when I was reading this for the first time, I thought, you know, I don't know if I've ever seen a parent or a grandparent pull out an iPhone and say, let me show you my little quiver and start flipping through it. Arrow number one, arrow number two, arrow number three. I've never seen that. I mean, we have all kinds of name for, names for our offspring, depending on their behavior at the moment, but it's not arrows. So we have to get back into Solomon's world and find out why is he calling kids arrows? There's a lot behind this. Listen to what he's saying. Arrows had two key uses, protection against enemies, and it talks about enemies in verse 5, and second, putting food on the table. 
So arrows were key to survival. It meant a family was well protected, and it meant that a family was going to be well provided for in the future. One commentator who obviously raised kids of his own said this, Children are a handful before they ever become a quiverful. And all the parents in the room say, Amen. Amen. A few years ago, Carrie calls me and she says, You're not going to believe what just happened. We were at the playground and I uh, had the boys out there. And at that point, we just had Ryan and Scott. And Scott was about two and a half. He was about Josie's age. And they played with these little, uh, these little characters up here. You can see these little Playmobil characters. The one on the left is a red coat. And the one on the right is a pirate. And I'll give you one guess as to which ones became the good guys, the pirates. That's what all little boys do. And which ones became the bad guys, the red coats. So they're out there on the playground, and my little Scott, two and a half years old, walks up to this five-year-old boy, twice his age, twice his size, puts his little finger right in his chest, and he goes, I know you a wet coat. <laughs> that little boy looked at him like, what in the world are you talking about, kid? <laughs> and when I read that, I think, man, that's my little arrow right there. Like, he's got my back. But I think there's something else worth bringing out here. Arrows are intended to be launched. Arrows are one-way projectiles. They're not like boomerangs. What do boomerangs do? You throw the boomerang, it comes back, and you duck, right? They're not like boomerangs. They're one-way projectiles. And here's what we do with arrows. We sharpen them, we prepare them, and then we launch them out for the purpose that they were created for. You see where I'm going with kids here? Our job as a church is to come alongside families that dedicate their children to the Lord and help to sharpen them spiritually and emotionally and mentally and socially relationally and prepare them for the world so they can be launched out to achieve God's glory wherever God sends them. I believe we've forgotten what the purpose of children are in our culture. We've turned it inward and we've made it all about the children. It's not about the children. These children up here are arrows that are intended one day to go out and find a spouse and have a home and work a job and share Christ and raise kids and do all the things that many of you in this room have done for decades. They're not intended to stay right here up under us all the time. And this challenges some of us as young parents. But God gives us children to launch them into life. In fact, I have a book on my shelf that's called Launching Your Kids for Life. And I picture putting my kids in a big slingshot and just shooting them across the lake. But that's not what it's talking about. Sorry. But listen, do arrows launch themselves? Can this arrow that Nathan has down here that he used this morning, can you hold that up? Is it going to go anywhere if it's not put into the right equipment, a bow, and launched? Arrows cannot do anything on their own. They require someone to sharpen, prepare, and launch them in the direction that they ought to go. Does that arrow know where it's supposed to go? All the hunters in the room say, we wish it did. But it doesn't. It has to be sharpened, prepared, and aimed. So here's my question for us as a church family. Will we take seriously our responsibility that we're about to commit to in a moment? Will we take seriously our responsibility collectively to partner with young families that dedicate their kids to the Lord and say, we want to help you in every way possible to launch these children toward a successful life, not as the way the world measures it, but in what God's Word says about success. 
do you understand how important? Let, let me speak to you as a dad for a minute. Okay? Let me, let me just speak to you as a dad for a minute. I have two children that are going to be up here in just a moment. Do you know how much I need all of you in the lives of my young children? Do you know how many times they go home, and not just mine, but I guarantee you some of these other kids in this room talk about some of you in this room and say, man, I really like hanging out with Mr. So-and-so. Or I like to see Mrs. So-and-so. This is the deep, deep significance of plugging in. Please listen to me a moment. Plugging in and putting down roots in a church family together. It really does require an entire church family to sharpen, prepare, and launch our children and our teenagers in the right direction. They don't come with it hardwired in there knowing which way to aim. In fact, if you watch kids, they're all over the place. It's so vital that you don't just pop in here once or twice a month or even just come for one hour a week on a Sunday morning, but you, you lock arms with these young families that need you in their lives. I'm saying all that as a dad. I, I need you all. My kids need you all. And as a pastor speaking to you, as my congregation, one of the things I love the most is watching people of different generations, 8-year-olds and 68-year-olds, stand together in worship. I have a picture of Glenna McKinney. Is Glenna here this morning? She's not. I have a picture of Glenna back here in the back holding a hymnal open with one of my boys and pointing out how to follow along and read those words with my children while they sang. I love that picture because I think it is a perfect encapsulation of Psalm 127. Can I touch on one more thing and then I'm done? You hear this sentiment of, oh, we love kids. They're the church of tomorrow. Well, at what point do they become the church of today? Like, when do they grow into this place and say, okay, you're this old, now you're a part of the church? I don't think so. Kids are not the church of tomorrow. They are the church of today. You know why? Because every one of you kids in this room, I'm looking for you, trying to find you. Every one of you kids in this room, bring something to your families and something to this church family that we need. If you weren't down here climbing up steps and saying crazy things, and playing on a Sunday Funday, if you weren't here, we would be missing something so vital, according to God's word. Every one of you matter. So much so that in Matthew 18, you know what Jesus did? He grabs up this little snaggletooth second grader with dirt smudges all over his face. And he puts this little child in front of his disciples and he says, this is your model for greatness. You want to be great? You want to enter the kingdom? Then you need to spiritually become like one of these. At this church, for years, you all have loved children. And you have mentored children. And that will continue. And that's what today is all about. And so the examples we set, the hallway conversations we have, the attitudes that we show towards worship and giving and serving inform our kids. Someone said children are great imitators. So give them something great to imitate. See, we got to get back to the fundamentals. Home, work, security family. And we got to get back to those fundamentals and do them the way that God tells us to do them in his word. Because unless he's Lord over these areas of our lives, it'll all be in vain.
So here's how we're going to apply this message this morning. I'm going to pray right now, and as soon as I finish praying, all of our families and and, uh, Reverend Jim Brewer is going to come up to lead us through the dedication. We're going to go through our time of dedication here as an application of a church family together applying this sermon this morning. And Jim's going to lead us through this dedication, and he's going to give a charge to the parents and a charge to the church family. And he's going to pray over us, and then uh, Diane's going to sing a song as we walk around. As these children are brought past you and they walk there, their little ones around. Will you please pray over them as they pass by? Write down their names or it's in your bulletin and commit to pray for them every day or every week. And then Nathan's going to present these children and families with a gift and then we will dismiss. So let's go to the Lord together in prayer.